Good morning. Let's go ahead and open with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to study, and we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds as we study into this very important end-time topic about your ministry for us in heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And so today we are doing lesson number five, Christ in the Heavenly Sanctuary, in, in the quarterly preparation of the end time. And we're going to do something I rarely do. We're going to start with Friday's lesson. So jump, if you have the quarterly, jump to Friday. And there's a quote in there from a book some of you may have heard of called Great Controversy, page 421. And this is the quote in the lesson from that book. As anciently the sins of the people were by faith placed upon the sin offering and through its blood transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary... So in the new covenant, the sins of the repentant are by faith placed upon Christ and transferred, in fact, to the heavenly sanctuary. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is to be accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. But before this can be accomplished, there must be an examination of the books of record to determine who, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, are entitled to the benefits of his atonement. The cleansing of the sanctuary, therefore, involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment. This work must be performed prior to the coming of Christ to redeem his people. For when he comes, his reward is with him to give every man according to his works. Is that clear and plain to everyone? So when we read something like this, do we take it literally? As, and, and, I, and I was told I had to actually preamble with this. You know, Jesus said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And before you can actually sometimes lay some new concepts, you have to, you know... Pass the holes. Yes, you have to... Well, you have to tear down some, some misunderstandings. So I really think this has got a lot of truth in, uh, in here. So don't get uncomfortable if I actually ask some questions that challenge some of this. Because we're going to lay a beautiful understanding of this before we're done. So... Do we take it literally as if the description is exactly what is happening in heaven, or do we realize that this was written to communicate an idea, but does not necessarily represent an exact mechanistic way things happen? What do I mean? Well, do we all believe the Bible is inspired by God? I do. I think we all do. Do we take the Bible exactly as it reads when it's talking about heavenly things? Or do we interpret those things through certain lenses. For instance, let's consider the story in 1 Kings 22. The setting is Ahab is meeting Jehoshaphat, trying to get Jehoshaphat to uh, join him in attacking Ramoth Gilead. Uh, the prophet Micaiah is called, and here is what the scripture reads. Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, with all the hosts of heaven standing around him, and on his right, on, on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, before, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Do we take this literally, just as it reads? Isn't this a Bible record of an inspired prophet of God delivering a message from God to Israel's king? So shouldn't we believe this is how things work? Or should we understand that God does not lie? And we need to ask some questions. That something else was happening here. This is not an exact representation of how heaven works. Is it? Anybody believe this is how heaven works? But this was a message given from a prophet from God, not a false prophet. So how do we understand it? Well, this message was to Ahab, who was a worshiper of Baal. And he believed in his primitive understanding of reality that God makes all things happen that happen. So in grace, God steps down and assumes the role of causing the lies to be told in order to get a message to Ahab that if he goes to war, he will die. This was not about how things happen in heaven, but it was a message of mercy communicated to Ahab, if you go to war, you're going to die. You've been lied to. These are the problems. Could the description of what was written in Friday's lesson be similar? Written in a certain way to communicate a theme or an idea to a group of people or a certain audience that has a mindset. So let's ask some questions about the quote in Friday's lesson. 
Do we take it literally as it reads, by itself, isolated and disconnected from any other resource, or do we require our understanding of that paragraph to harmonize with the rest of Scripture and the same author's own writings? Do we require that? Is that unreasonable to do? It needs to harmonize with the rest of Scripture and the author's other writings. If Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, emphasizes that Christ is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, then why do we insist on ascribing to him the rituals and activities of the Levitical priesthood? Think with me. I'll read to you from Hebrews 7, 11, and 12. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the base of it, of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Do we describe our heavenly high priest functioning as Melchizedek with a new law? Or do we describe our heavenly high priest with the law of Aaron and and, and Levi? Interesting. Could the law change? Think about the ceremonial law. What kind of law functionally is the ceremonial law? It is a system of imposed directives. It's imposed law. Could the change of law that Melchizedek brings be that we stop interpreting the action of our heavenly high priest through imposed lenses, system of rules and legal accounting, and start seeing it through design law lenses, a plan to heal and restore? Do we believe that Jesus is in heaven dropping red corpuscles from his hands anywhere? That there's actual blood being applied anywhere? No, so we, we have to understand, and I'm not being offensive, I'm just trying to break the idea of literalism, that we have to go and see what's the real, the reality behind these metaphors. Why do we say that Jesus' blood, or the blood of Jesus, must be taken into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary on the Day of Atonement to remove the sins of the people, which were symbolically transferred to the sanctuary during the uh, the, the, the sin offerings that were happening all year long when the blood from those sin offerings never went into the most holy place. For the non-priests, they only were taken to the bronze altar, and for the priests, they only went into the holy place. But the, the blood of the sin offerings never went into the most holy place. Why are we saying that the most holy place has been contaminated by that blood transferring it in there when it never went there? Oh, was it only sprinkled before the veil? Exactly. In, in the holy place before the veil, not in the most holy place. Why did Jesus say that, his, excuse me, where did Jesus say in John 6 that his blood was to be applied? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says the blood of him, his blood is to be applied inside the believer. Hmm. Why do we say the blood of the daily sacrifices that were applied to the altars and sprinkled before the veil why do we say um, that these blood defiles the sanctuary or contaminates the sanctuary when according to Scripture, and I'm going to read the quote here in a moment, everything that blood came in contact with made holy. Never in Scripture does the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminate or defile. It always cleanses and makes holy. But we have this idea that the blood going into the sanctuary defiled or, made, or, or contaminated. Where does that come from? It's not from Scripture. Do you actually believe that when when Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that sin contaminated the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus now, if you partake of the blood of Jesus, it connotes sin to you. But that's the idea being communicated, that the blood of Jesus goes into the heavenly sanctuary and it becomes contaminated by the blood of Jesus. Or do we believe that the blood, when Jesus confronted sin, he destroyed sin, and he remained pure? This is Leviticus 6, starting in verse 25 to 29. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron and his sons, These are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord, and the place of the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The sin offering is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it, 
and it is to be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard in the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in a holy place. The clay pot that the meat is cooked in must be broken. If it's cooked in a bronze pot, the pot must be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in the priest's family may eat of it. It is most holy. You never find that the sin offering contaminated. Yes? Not talking about the sin offering, but the Day of Atonement, it describes the cleansing of the sanctuary because it was contaminated with the sins. Yep, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I'm just pointing out that this idea doesn't have foundation in the way we teach it. Okay. Why do we say that the sins are transferred to the sanctuary in heaven? Think that. Sins are transferred to the sanctuary in heaven. Can inanimate objects, buildings, gold, silver, actually be sinful? Isn't this exactly contrary to Romans chapter 14, where Paul makes the point that an idol cannot affect inanimate material. It can't affect the, the quality of the food. It cannot be contaminated. And I, I can't do it. It's nothing but wood and gold. Sin is lawlessness, rebellion, living in opposition to God's law. How can a building in heaven do this? How can rebelliousness be transferred to a building? It is argued that Daniel 8.14 refers to the heavenly sanctuary because in 1844, there was no other sanctuary on earth that the Bible speaks about. And I'll give you a quote. Great Controversy 4.12. Speaking of the earthly sanctuary, the, the Old Testament one. This is the only sanctuary that ever existed on earth of which the Bible gives us any information. This was declared by Paul to be the sanctuary of the first covenant. But has the new covenant no sanctuary? Hmm. It's the implication is, well, there's only that building and then there's no other one the Bible talks about. What, what about 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And there are many more about you are living stones being built together for a temple for God. The Bible does talk about another temple. And wasn't that other temple on earth in 1844? We see that the sanctuary of the new covenant must be in heaven because Hebrews says it was pitched by God and not by man. It was not made with human hands. Who made human beings? Human beings weren't made with human hands. Human beings were made by God. And with putting that together, 2 Corinthians 5.1, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.1. Now think through the, this, this idea I'm trying to get in your mind around. Listen to this. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Isn't that interesting? What tent is this referring to that's not built by human hands? The tent that is the spirit temple that was on earth in 1844 that needs to be cleansed from sin. Jesus actually said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. John 2.19. To what was Jesus referring? The same author who wrote the quote that we're really struggling with, in the same book, five pages later, writes the following. This is on page 426 of the Controversy. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same events. Jermaine, three different places describe the same event. So let's look at Malachi. So Daniel 8, 2300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. Ooh, what will that be? Will that be a building in heaven? Let's look at Malachi, because it's the same event according to the same author. Here's what it says. See, I will send my messenger who, you will, pre who will prepare the way before you. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And what do those do? They cleanse. They purify. Notice now. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them 
like gold and silver. Hmm. So Daniel 8.14, according to this author, is the same event that's happening here. And what's being cleansed at the end of the 2300 days, according to this, which describes the same event, but the Levites, who are the priesthood of believers, who are the temple that was not built with human hands. Interesting. If you look in the SDE Bible commentary, you will discover that the Hebrew word translated cleansed in Daniel 8.14 is more accurately translated justified. Unto 2300 days, and the sanctuary shall be justified. What does justified mean? Set right, put right, made right, put back in line. If those of you have a word processor, and in your word processor you justify your margins, what have you done? Pardoned them? Paid a legal price for them? Taken away their sins. Taken away their sins? Or actually moved the margins that were out of line. You actually done something and moved them to be in line. That's what justification is. It's taking what's out of harmony, what's out of line, what's out of order, and moving it into order, into line. Setting it right, putting it right. And the question is, what needs justifying? What is wrong that needs to be set right? What is out of line that needs to be put in line? What is out of harmony needs to be harmonized. And it is the mind, heart, character of sinners. That's what God is working to set right, to put right, to heal, to restore, to bring us back into at one with him. Another quote from the same author from Friday's lesson. This is a book called Desire of Ages, page 165. Since the whole ritual economy was symbolic of Christ, it has no value apart from him. When the Jews sealed their rejection of Christ by delivering him to death, they rejected all that gave significance to the temple and its service. What does that mean? The entire system was representative of Christ. It was symbolic of Christ. Sins are being transferred to the temple, then does that mean sins are transferred to Christ, not to a building? If it's all representative of Christ. Could it mean that when we transfer sin to Christ, we're actually transferring our sin condition, our sinfulness? He took upon himself our sin in order for him to overcome where we could not overcome. Well, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Excuse 4 through 6. Actually, 4 and 5 is correct. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Or, I think it says it a little more succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might, notice what happens, we might become, not be declared, we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible describes the sanctuary, the temple, in another way, as the dwelling place for God. Deuteronomy 16.11 And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling place for his name. What does that mean, a dwelling place for his name? What is signified by God's name? His character. His character. So this will be a dwelling place for God's character. Hmm. What do you think was God's original plan, temple, construct, building, that he built, created, to be the dwelling place for his character? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were to be the dwelling place for God's character. What is the new covenant experience? What's to be written in the heart and mind? I will write my law in your heart and mind. And the law is a transcript of his character. In the old system, the law was kept inside the box, inside the most holy place. In the new system, the new covenant, the law is written back into the heart of the person. Adam and Eve, though, created to be the dwelling place for God's character, instead corrupted themselves. Their sanctuaries became defiled by fear and selfishness and lies. So a second Adam came. Jesus came to be the second Adam. To do what? What did he come to do? 
Would, 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 would anybody have a problem if I said, Jesus came to earth to build his temple? Would you have a problem with that? Anybody uncomfortable with that language? Well, that's not me, that's Zechariah. 6, chapter 12 and 13. Tell him... That was tricky. That was tricky, wasn't it? Yeah. Tell him... Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, capital B, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule in his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Now, who do you think is the one who branches out or leaves his place in heaven? This is Jesus. And, and according to Zechariah, he does it for one specific reason, to build his temple. Now, there should be a whole lot of questions in your mind on this. If the temple in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary, is a building constructed out of inanimate material, gold and silver and, 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 and cedar wood, and, and it's built out of inanimate material, why would Christ need to leave heaven to make that construct? I mean, why would he need to go build it if it's already in existence there? Am I causing any cognitive dissonance for people yet? <laughs> I mean, this is the goal. I mean, these questions are real. These are legitimate. They're appropriate. We want to understand the realities, not, these, not this dark speech symbolism stuff. What does the Bible describe as supposed to be our dwelling place? Psalms 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. The Lord is to be our dwelling place. Hmm. Or how about this one? Psalms 23.6. At the end of the psalm, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Are you looking forward to being imprisoned in a building for all eternity? For all eternity, you will dwell in this building. Or if you think, well, no, I, I, I'll just, that, you know, that's be my home, that'll be my bedroom, but I'll get to leave. Well, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 and 13 says, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. <laughs> Do you believe the heavenly temple is made out of inanimate matter? Gold, silver, bricks, mortar, cedar wood and that you will be locked in that building and never will you get to leave it. If we take the Bible literally, if we can't reason, we can't think, we can't see past symbolism, then we end up with, with this, these terrible distortions about God. Why do you think you will never leave the temple of God? Why will you dwell in his house forever? What is the temple? And I, guys, I believe in a real physical temple in heaven. So, so, so people will ask, don't you believe there's a physical temple in heaven? I do believe there's a physical temple in heaven. Question. If you use inspired sources only. Inspired sources only. That, that, and by the way, that does not include the SDA Bible commentary. That is not an inspired source. Okay. If you use inspired sources only, what is the building material of the sanctuary in heaven? Living stones. Seriously, you can look this up. There's multiple Bible passages, and some people value the writings of Ellen White. You can look at her writings as well. And if you read those writings, you will discover that the building material of the heavenly sanctuary are living beings. That's what it's built out of. Know ye not that ye are living stones built together in a house for the Lord. And that's why you will be a temple and never leave it because you are part of it. So no matter where you go in the universe, you're still part of that construct, part of that temple, that living temple. Then what is it, if we're right about this, our inferences here, what is it that needs to be cleansed? When the temple is cleansed then? Sinners. Sinners need to be cleansed. So what does all this mean? Well, here's how I'm uh, putting it together thus far in our, our discussion. We're going to get some more points. Heaven itself was contaminated with lies about God and rebellion from his methods, you might call that sin, by Satan before the creation of humankind. Heaven itself was contaminated. God created humankind to be a temple, a holy place, where God would dwell by His Spirit, where His name and His character would dwell in His temple. Satan infected the human temple with lies about God, and the human temple became defiled. 
we were filled with fear and selfishness. Christ branched out. He left and became a second Adam to restore God's character in the human species, to defeat the lies, to rewrite the law of God's love and character back in the species human, and thus cleanse the temple, both from the lies and the fear and selfishness which the lies cause, restoring God's character into the living temple built by God. Now Christ works to restore the damage done to heaven itself by preparing each of us for a place in that, in that heavenly place, cleansing each of us for that day. Two more quotes from the same author that wrote the quote from Friday, Friday's lesson. The first one is found in a book called Education, page 34. In the building of the sanctuary as a dwelling place for God, Moses was directed to make all things according to the pattern of things in heaven. God called him to the mountain and revealed to him the heavenly things. And in their similitude, the tabernacle with all that pertained to it was fashioned. So to Israel, whom he desired to make his dwelling place, he revealed his glorious ideal of character. The pattern was shown them in the mount when the law was given from Sinai and when God passed by before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls glistening gold, reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white, and the deep mystery of the inner place above the mercy seat between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest. In all, in all of this, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. Are we breaking out of literalism yet? Are we willing to go past bricks and mortar and gold and silver? Are we seeing that this is an object lesson for you, the temple where God wants to dwell? It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by the Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, Know ye not that ye are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then the second quote comes from a book called Desire of Ages, page 161. In the cleansing of the temple, and we're talking in a lesson today about the heavenly work to cleanse the temple, Daniel 8.14. So in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson to Israel and to the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man can no, longer re, uh, can no longer reveal the glory of the Divine One. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. What purpose? Next sentence. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. Do you have that destiny? Is your expectation when you read about Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary that what he's primarily working to do is to cleanse your soul? Keep on with the quote. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and holy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits, that corrupt the soul. And then she quotes Malachi 3, 1 through 3, which she earlier said is the same thing as Daniel 8, 14. She quotes it right here, that the Lord will come suddenly to his temple and he will come and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as silver and gold. Do you understand that the, that the message of Daniel eight fourteen, the cleansing of the sanctuary message is about cleansing people? not cleansing buildings, unless you understand the building is built out of people. 
Is it safe to say that the bricks and the gold and everything are supposed to represent things in us? Purity? Yes, in next week's talk, we will actually unpack all the symbols, well, not all of them, but most of the symbols of the Old Testament sanctuary and see the literal application. One that everybody gets in the lamb, the sacrificial animal, was representative of Jesus. That's one everybody gets. Okay? Next week, we'll, in, our, in our seminar, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we will unpack the rest of the symbolism of the Old Testament sanctuary. So what cleanses the sanctuary? Jesus. First, in his own personal work as our Savior, as a human being on earth, and then in all who trust him. Jesus cleanses the sanctuary. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. What does this mean? Is it talking without red corpuscles? Is that what it's talking about? Or is blood symbolic of something else? Well, again, here's two quotes from the same author from that quote we started with. This this first is out of Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 378. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as the receiving and doing his words, which are spiritual life. When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's not talking cannibalism. It's metaphor. And that metaphor was translated into a new metaphor, bread and wine. Jesus is the word made flesh. And as you partake of either physical meat or physical bread, you are partaking of substances that are broken down into molecules that become building blocks for your physical body. It's a metaphor. As you partake of the word made flesh, the truth that Jesus brings, those truths become concepts, ideas, building blocks that form your belief systems and your values and and, and ultimately help shape your character. And the blood, the life is in the blood. And the blood became the wine. This is my, my blood shed for you. And the life of Jesus. So as we take in the building blocks of truth and our concepts of God are changed and we come to trust and open the heart, it says he pours his love into our heart. We, per- we receive the life of Christ. We get new heart, new motive, new desires. But it's all working inside the center. Here's the second quote, Christ's Object Lessons 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man. Bringing the coarse, excuse me, the leaven of truth makes a change in the whole man. Making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the lamb. Is that what you hear? See, what does the truth cleanse? Where does truth, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Where does truth have power? In your mind. And what does truth have power to do? Set you free from lies, distortions, distrust. Win us back so that we can have a knowledge of God. And if you know God, this is life eternal. So the work of cleansing is a work of cleansing hearts and minds from all types of corruption that alienates us and keeps us from God. That's partaking of the blood. But there's more questions that remain to be answered from the quote. Why investigate records? Who needs to investigate? Is there something God doesn't know and until the records are open and he begins looking in those books, then he goes, oh my goodness, I forgot about that one. I didn't know that one. Is God investigating to discover something? Is that what's happening? It's, met, it's often presented this way. There's an investigation to see who's, who's accepted Jesus and who's been and who hasn't. And, and God's uh, trying to figure things out. This is not what's happening. God does not need to investigate. He's omniscient. He knows everything already. Everybody agree with that? Investigation is not for God's edification, knowledge, or understanding or learning. In this great controversy, in this warfare between Christ and Satan, who is the primary individual that has been misrepresented and lied about? God. And who are the ones who believe those lies? We are the ones who believe those lies. Do you have a question? There's a a Sabbath school leader in uh, California, Mike Wood, who kind of brought this to my attention. um, That it's not necessarily that we believe the lies, but that once sin happened, something changed in us. So Adam and Eve had perfect knowledge of, well, as perfect as they could get at that time of God's character, right? Before the fall. Once the fall happened, what happened? What did they do? They ran and they hid. Did they know that God was loving and kind and, and you know, all, all, all loving? And what did God do? He didn't pluck the bush out from 
of which they were hiding. He said, where are you? He tried to draw them out. And so his, his concept, which I think um, really resonates with, with me, is that God has to fix, the Holy Spirit has to fix this, and, and we're all, we've all had this broken concept of God. And no, that's exactly true. We have a broken concept of God, we also have a broken nature. There's two elements that are going on. Distorted thinking, false beliefs, lies, if you want to call them that, and our own carnal nature, which is fear-driven and self-centered. And we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So we're born with a condition we didn't choose. Adam and Eve chose. We didn't choose. But through God's plan, worked out by Christ, we have been given an option to choose remedy, to choose healing, to choose restoration and reconciliation with our God. We can't choose not to be born a sinner, but we can choose the Savior who can heal us from the condition with which we're born. So questions, who needs, so in this investigation, who was the one that was lied about? Does God need to investigate to figure out he was lied about? No. Who needs something revealed to them to reveal that God has been misrepresented? All those who believe, all the sinners, all those who believe the lies, yes. Um, You you mentioned us, man, which I totally agree, but I think there's also, uh, in view of the great controversy, the heavenly hosts that were a part of this whole um, you know, war up in heaven, that there were also some questions that rose within the angels themselves, both the good and the bad. Yes, and how are those questions being answered? If you actually read widely in the inspired record, you will find those answers are being answered widely through the outplay of, of good and evil on planet Earth, exactly. and ultimately in the life of Jesus Christ. Right. And Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, and it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all, not all men, that men's flight, all into me. That's right. Okay? And so up to that point in, in Earth's history, if you look at the landscape of inspiration, Satan had access to the heavenly beings. You see in the book of Job, he could go up there. He can still make allegations. But Jesus says, now, now is the time. He's going to be cast out. The prince of this world is going to be cast out from where? Where is he being cast out of at the crucifixion? Out of the hearts and minds and affection and trust of, the, of the, all those who see what he's doing, primarily at that time, the heavenly host. If you read in the book Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that after the crucifixion, Satan's work was restricted. He could no longer approach and harass the angels from heaven. Why? Is there like a force shield around the earth? And then he's like, and God's got like, no. That's not what's happening. It's because the evidence, the truth, has now solidified the questions in the angels' minds. They don't have questions about God's just, God's just character, God's um, um, methods and, and principles, the holiness and righteousness of his cause. They trust him completely now, and so when Satan tries to approach him, basically their minds are going, fuck to the hand, we're not listening. We won't listen to you anymore. You have proven yourself to be completely the enemy, and so he's cast out of their affections, out of their loyalty, out of their mind. The only beings in the universe who listen to him now are on planet Earth. So he's restricted to here. That's his restriction. Do they have questions about us? I don't believe so. I think that's a, I think that's a, a nice, um, comforting idea. But if you understand how reality works, I don't believe that's the case at all. We always get this. Well, they need to know because they're worried on who's going to be a safe neighbor when we get to heaven. Well, not if you understand how reality works. How, what happens to an unhealed sinner in the presence of an unveiled glory of God? What's, what, 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 what's the natural consequence? If, okay, what does Ellen White say about Christ? If Christ would have come with the glory he shared with the Father before his incarnation, he would have destroyed those he came to save. Why? Because he would have been mad if he had come with that glory? He had been a different character, more hostile, more negative? No, because we can't live in the unveiled glory of God until we have been healed and restored. So there's going to be no question. It will be self-evident by who can stand in his presence and who is, is transformed like Moses, who loves in his glory, and who begged for the mountains to fall on him and tortured and tormented because they can't stand to be in the presence of love and truth. So I don't believe that idea of they need to investigate so they'll feel comfortable. It becomes self-evident. So who then needs to actually investigate? Who are the ones who don't know? Who are the ones who are still confused? We are the ones. And what do we need to investigate? Well, there's another text from that earlier one. There was three texts referenced that, that refer to the same event. Daniel 8.14, Malachi 3, and Daniel 7. Now notice what happens in Daniel 7. It says in Daniel 7 that the court was seated and the books were opened. 
whose books are being opened here? In Daniel 7, whose books are being opened? This is the com. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I was hoping somebody would say that. Because the answer almost always given is our books are being opened. Hmm. Think that through. Churches are tax deductible organizations that receive donations and spend money in various ways and so forth, and they keep books of all their donors, where the money's spent. If somebody comes in and audits the books and their church books are opened, who's being examined? The church or the donors? Church. Whose books are they? The church books or the donors' books? Church. Who keeps these books that are being opened in heaven? These are not our books. These are God's books. God keeps these books. Who's the one that's been lied about? God's the one that's been lied about. Why would God need to open books and allow himself to be examined? Why would he need to do that? Well, imagine I present myself to your community. I say, hey guys, I have developed a cure for cancer. I have cured 50 people from cancer. And I bring 50 people up here and I ask you to examine them and bring your medical experts. And your experts examine the 50 people. And sure enough, none of the 50 have cancer. Does that prove I've developed a cure for cancer? No. It does not. Why? What's the problem here? How do you know they ever had cancer in the first place? So instead, what I do now is I bring in a bunch of medical records that show the disease of cancer, and I also show that I put a treatment, and I show that in the records that those people no longer have cancer, but I won't let you examine the patients. Will you now believe I have a cure for cancer? No. You still won't believe. Why? Ah, that's exactly right. Why is this analogy relevant? How is this analogy relevant to God's plan of salvation and the purpose of the records? Because after Satan's original lies to the angels in heaven, another set of lies came forward. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41. Many angels were disposed to heed the counsel to repent of their disaffection and to seek again to be received in the favor of God and his Son. But Lucifer had another deception ready for them. The mighty revolter now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far to return. And he was acquainted, he was acquainted with the divine law and knew that God would not forgive. So far as Satan himself was concerned, it was true that he had gone too far to return, but not so with those who he had blinded by his deceptions. To them, the counsel and entreaties of the loyal angels opened a door of hope. And had they heeded the warning, they might have broken away from the snare of Satan. Interesting stuff here. So not only were there the original lies about God that he can't trust him, but then some angels who sided with Satan, who were warned by friends in heaven, who were thinking about actually going back, saying, I'm sorry, I really believe you now. Satan says, oh no, God won't forgive. You can't return. Once you've decided to make a choice against him, uh, he's an unforgiving God. Do you see this lie persisting in Christianity today? God won't forgive unless he's paid by the blood of a human sacrifice. And thus, or if he's had the wrong kind of sin. And thus, in Revelation chapter 5 now, guys, hold on to your socks. We have heavenly books that were sealed with seven seals. And only Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy to open the books. And he opened the books for all the contents to be seen. And what do we find in the books sealed with seven seals? First off, who wrote the book sealed with seven seals? God wrote that. This is God's book. If you look, and I want you to go back this afternoon and read Daniel 7 and the description of the heavenly court and the heavenly scene in Daniel 7, and then go to uh, Revelation 5 and read the description in Revelation 5, and you will describe their very, very close descriptions of the same thing, Christ being coronated, Christ receiving his, his throne and power, Christ being put uh, up as the, as the one who is worthy, 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 worthy as the lamb who is slain. Additionally, if you remember from the quote I read earlier, that what you're seeing in Daniel 7 is the same event as Daniel 8.14. So you know that what's happening in Daniel 7 is taking place at at 18.44 and sometime later, which is what's happening in, in Revelation 5. And then, and remember, that's also Malachi 3, which is when he comes to cleanse the Levites. And so if you think all that through... 
Here at an end of time, Christ opens the book with seven seals for people to understand and comprehend what's there. And I'm going to suggest to you what's there in a moment. And as we see the truth of what's there, we investigate, we study, and we discover the truth about God and what he's accomplished through Christ. And the lies that Satan has told about him are, 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 are removed. And we, living stones, Levites, are being cleansed by the work of our high priest in heaven who is opening the book and giving us the truth to heal us. And what is described in the book, sealed with seven seals, my view, and if you read the actual what's happened in, in, in the rest of Revelation, it's the great controversy. That's what's described. The war that began in heaven, how it progressed across earth, and how it comes ultimately to culmination. And you will find right in the middle of that is the great multitude who have, are in white. And so you'll have the names registered of all the righteous who are saved right in the middle of those in that book. So we don't have time to do it today. I thought it would be nice, but we won't have time to do it. So as an afternoon activity, I encourage you to take the remedy, New Testament, and read this afternoon out loud chapters 5 through 11 in Revelation. And, and if you don't have one, it's a free app for your smart device. You can get it. Just go to the Remedy New Testament, and you can download it for free. So it won't cost you anything. Read those uh, six chapters or so, Revelation 5 through 11, with this idea in mind. This book is being opened for the cleansing of his people to prepare them to meet him when he comes. It's very profound as you look at that. So what about the idea that records of our cases are there, and our characters, and our names are being reviewed? Well, imagine you have a child. Your child's been diagnosed with metastatic cancer. The doctors all tell you there's nothing they can do. Their child's going to die. But you hear of a doctor, if you go to this doctor, everybody, 100% to go, come away with a clean bill of health. So you call and get an appointment. Sure enough, he'll, he'll see you. You gather all the medical records and all the data. You rush out to see this doctor. You take your child and you hand him the, the MRIs, the CAT scans, the bone biopsies, and all the, the diagnosis and evidence of disease. And, and the doctor takes the medical record. He opens it up, and he begins pulling out all the documentation of disease, sticking in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back to you and go, here, no more record of disease. You go on home. Are you happy if that was your circumstance? Do you understand what I just described is classic description of the, what's going on in the heavenly sanctuary? That Jesus is up there opening record books, and he's pulling out records of sin, and he's sticking in clean white sheets of paper. It doesn't work. It's, it's a fraud. But how about you go to the doctor, and it documents how sick your child is, but the doctor leaves the record there, but he goes over to your child, and he intervenes in your child with a remedy that actually puts the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The cancer cells remit back to their previous cancer-free healthy state. Without the shedding of blood, without Jesus' sacrifice and what he's accomplished, we could not be remitted back to God's original ideal for humankind in Adam and Eve. And so the medical records for your child will show the extent of the sickness, the disease, the cancer, but it will also now show that the child has partaken of the remedy, and then now the records show that the cancer is in remission. Your child's cancer-free. This is really the reality of what's happening. We are to be investigating the truth of the great controversy, the truth of the lies about Satan, that Satan has told about God, the truth that Jesus has revealed. And we have to choose. Do we believe the truth about God or do we believe the lies? If we believe the truth, guess what happens when you believe the truth about God? You come to know him, and when you know him, you open your heart and trust him. And life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. As you open the heart, the Spirit comes in, and the Spirit takes the victories of Christ and reproduces it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We are being transformed. We are being renewed. The law is being written on the heart and mind. We're being cleansed. The heart of stone is being removed. The heart of flesh is being put in. This is transformational, regenerational. Thus, the Spirit's temple is being cleansed. And so, from the same author as that original quote, Signs of the Times, April 17, 1901. Listen to this. The cases of all are pending in the heavenly sanctuary. Day by day, angels of God are watching the development of character. All defects must be remedied. The character must be assimilated to the character of Christ. At an infinite cost, a fountain has been prepared for our cleansing. In the blood of the Son of God, we may wash our garments of character and make them white. Notice what's being cleansed in the Day of Atonement. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of 
his judgment has come. The hour in which he sits and has a tribunal and opens records and figures things out, or the hour in which he is being judged. The hour of his judgment has come. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. That's Phillips. Or God, may you be proved right when you are judged. That's more traditional translations. God being judged? What does that mean? Romans 3, verse 4. If you're in a marriage relationship and someone lies to your spouse and tells your spouse you've been cheating, but you haven't, and your spouse, though, believes the lie and moves out, but you love your spouse and you want your spouse back, what will you have to do? Will you have to prove your innocence? But you've done nothing wrong. Who's on trial? The innocent one is on trial, and the innocent one proves their innocence to win back the one they love. That's where we are in this time. Fear God, be in awe of him, be in admiration, and give him glory, which means to reveal his character. Because the time in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. We must come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. We must come back to creator worship and stop worshiping this imperial dictator who won't forgive that second lie. who requires payment and appeasement of his wrath. Okay, we just finished with Friday's lesson. <laughs> Any questions with that? Yes. So our mind is the literal book that, you're, that is in heaven. So, so if you read again widely, Ellen White actually says in the record books of heaven, what's recorded in the record books of heaven, she used the old language called daguerreotype. That's a 19th century word for a photograph, a daguerreotype. In the heavenly records is recorded a daguerreotype or a photograph of your character. And she says as the plate takes the image of the face, so the heavenly records take an exact impression of your character. That's what's recorded in the heavenly records, not a least list of deeds. Has your character been renewed to be like Christ, just as I read in this other quote? Or do you formula, form a character that looks like Satan? That's really what's there. Yes? Would you say that's why your message is getting so much resistance? It's because there's actual weight behind it when people aren't seeing the change in their own life and they're still struggling with things or they're still, they're still um, kind of living in the sin even though they know they shouldn't because it's much easier just to ask for forgiveness and then you're exactly right um this this i think you're exactly right this resistance comes because it is easier for people to continue to live and i'll tell you there's large systems of religion that you can be a mafioso boss order murders run run syndicate organizations and as long as you go to confession and confess your sin to get legal pardon and forgiveness for that sin applying the blood of Jesus and the heavenly system up there then you're still going to go to heaven your sins are not counted against you you won't be punished for them there's no transformation of character in that system now Protestant groups have taken that same system and they've just removed the earthly priest from it but they still have now Jesus as the high priest who we go to and we claim his legal blood and he applies it in some way in heaven and then we get legal pardon for the sins. We, but there's no requirement that we grow and transform. In fact, most Protestant churches have some, something inside their organization, even if it's not the official position, but it's their operating, that says things like this. There's no victory over sin. You'll never have victory in your life. You'll continue to sin right until Jesus comes. But as long as you've claimed the blood of Jesus, he pays the price for you and the Father won't punish you. It's a fraud. It's not the way it works. We actually get new hearts and right spirits, and so we get Bible perfection, but, oh boy, that's a scary word, because people hear it under level four and below. They hear it under imperial law. They hear it under performance. They hear it under behavior, and they know their behavior will never be perfect. That's not Bible perfection. Bible perfection is not behavior. Bible perfection is maturity of character. Thus it says in Hebrews 5, 9, and 10 about Jesus, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. But he, wasn't he always perfect? No, he's always sinless. Bible perfection is mature character. And Jesus had to develop a perfect human character. And this he offers as a free gift to all who obey him. And so it describes in Revelation 12, 11, those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes, those translated at the end with these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Notice what's happened. It's a fundamental change of heart motive. They are not survival of the fittest, fear, self-centered, driven. They love God and others more than themselves. That's the primary motive. And we see that in people other than Jesus. We see Moses, who murdered at age 40, willing to give his life at age 80. We see Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who's willing to stone and imprison and beat at, at, after his Damascus road. He, I'll gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live. We see many people through history have come to the point that because of the power of God working in their life, they love others more than self. That's the transformation process the Bible talks about, that we have become like Christ in character. 
And as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of him, then we want to more closely uh, live in the details of life that more accurately reflect him. So um, people might live certain um, uh, styles of, of dress and so forth and so on, but those are not primarily the thing. These are quite, in fact, irrelevant. But a person who's come to know Christ may, may live very modestly because they want to show those principles in their life. Yes? So I believe that in Christ I live that character, right? I mean... But people will say, well, you're not perfect. And, and you hear for people who don't agree with your theology, they'll say, well, there's never been someone who has that perfection of character. So what's the answer to that? But, but that's not true. That's not true. Jesus, of course, perfected it for us all. But we can give examples of many people who in love gave their life for someone else. I gave the example last week of uh, Miriam and Barbie Fisher who uh, at, the, at the Nickel Mines Village schoolhouse at the Amish country a few years back, um, you know, and Carl Roberts entered the, the schoolroom and, and threw out all the adults and the boys and locked ten little girls in, in two-by-fours and two-by-sixes and had guns. And, and when he became agitated and violent, uh, the 13-year-old Miriam stands up and says, shoot me first and let the others go. And he shot and killed her. No sooner had her body hit the ground than her 11-year-old sister stands up and says, shoot me next and let the other ones go. And he shot her five times, but she survived. That is Bible perfection. That's, uh, you know, the normal thing when somebody's got a gun is for us to th- grab somebody else and throw them in front of us and try to shield ourselves and hide. That's the, that's the, the survival drive. That's the selfish heart. The willingness to step out and give your life for another. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a, a, a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We've got to give our lives for our brothers. That's the renewed and reborn heart. That's the Bible perfection. It's not whether um, you dribbled some soup on your chin or not. That type of behavior stuff, that's the children. That's they're looking at the deeds done and so forth. And, and they miss the whole point of the motive of the heart. That's why Rahab, Rahab lies, but she's found to be faithful even though she, her behavior is lying. Because why? Because she put herself in harm's way and was willing to put herself in, in potential life-threatening circumstance to protect others. That's why. I think that ties in with Christian humility, which always says, it wasn't I who had the courage to do that. That was Jesus living in me. Yes, of course. I, I always must be humble because I don't know what I would do. It's Christ in me that would do the right things. Yes, and, and, but we also must remember that Christ doesn't do it without your will for participation. Right. And so when we have the fruits of the Spirit and we surrender and love and trust Him, we get certain fruits or traits of character, and the last being self-control, not Holy Spirit control. So you're exactly right. We don't do it of ourselves. We don't do it in our own strength. We don't get those desires because we've generated them. We get them all from Jesus who empowers us, but we are willfully choosing and embracing and identifying and loving and saying, that's who I want to be like. It's our willful, purposeful choice, and there's a reason for that. Without your willful choice, you cannot be transformed. God has the power to create a new and right right over you and use power to, to make a new individuality, but you won't exist if he does that. The only way to keep you as a person is to have your voluntary participation in the entire process. And so, yes, it is true. All the power, all the regeneration, all the goodness, all the righteousness, all the love comes from Christ, but it comes in a cooperative relationship as we work out our salvation with fear and tremendity by choosing to identify with love and accept and participate in all that he provides. Yes? Do we agree with that? Yeah, thank you. Yes. And it also helps to remember what you say about reframing your thoughts. It's not about what I can and can't do, because then your motivation is completely 180 degrees the opposite way. It's, it's, it's so much more helpful to think, okay, how can I help those around me, or how can I show God's love to others instead of, oh, I can't do this because it's, it's, you know, against the law or whatever. Now do you guys see, and we're closing up right now, the incredible importance of the sanctuary message and how totally corrupted the message becomes when we replace God's design law with a human imperialistic legal system. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the most amazing creator God of love who built us originally to be a sanctuary, a temple where you dwell by your spirit. The human species became infected and corrupted and and misrepresented you with selfishness and sin and you sent Jesus to build the temple, 
to cleanse the temple, to restore your law, perfect love and character back into the spirit temple, the species human. And now Jesus is in heaven directing all the agencies for our healing and restoration. We ask the spirit of love and truth to come, enlighten our minds, restore in us your law, write it on our hearts and minds that we will be like you and reveal you and empower us now at this time in history to share this message to free more and more hearts and minds back into unity with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.